Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus, Jesus really loved this title, Son of Man. He refers to himself as the Son of Man numerous times uh, throughout Scripture. He uses it 28 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. Sounds familiar, right? The last couple of days devotions. He approached the Ancient of Days, it's capitalized, and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. To call himself the Son of Man is to indubitably make a full-on divine claim. Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. He called himself the Son of Man 28 times just in Matthew's account alone. That's what he's referring to. Our Jewish friends have pretty pitiful expectations for the Messiah, really. And this goes even to Jesus' own disciples. They think only in terms of God's will for the political benefit of Israel for a singular generation. That's what the disciples thought. That's what even modern-day Jews think. It's partly why they reject Jesus as the Messiah. The fact that wars continue, that Israel still has enemies, these are all reasons why uh, they deny Jesus as the Messiah. Because they, they have this myopic view of the political interests only of Israel, they utterly neglect the covenant as it was made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, and also Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This describes not merely the political leader for Israel for one generation. It describes someone whose dominion and kingdom is of every people, every nation, every language, all of them serving him. This is exactly what God told Abraham he would do. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. Hence, it is supernatural. It's not just for one generation, but for all believers for all time. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is obviously metaphysical. It is spiritual in nature. It is eternal in its scope. And that is what Jesus claims when he evokes the, pro the, the title of the Son of Man. Uh, now, don't, don't throw your, uh, your heretic harpoons at me. There are, in the Bible, multiple references to sons of God. There's only one reference to the Son of God with a capital S. That's when you're talking about Jesus. But the term sons of God can refer to Adam in the New Testament epistles, can refer to angels. 
uh, in the Old Testament. But the Son of God with a capital S, that's Jesus. So what is it to call him the Son of Man? This is the this is what uh, Daniel this is what Daniel describes in the imagery. What I, sudden, I, I suddenly saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. It's not capitalized in the Daniel prophecy, and Jesus uses it as a prophetic title. Hence, it's, it's titled, uh, it's capitalized in the, in the gospel accounts. There are multiple figures who could be referred to as sons of God, Adam, right, angels, things like this. But there's only one son of man, and that's Jesus. He's the only one who's ever claimed to fulfill this prophecy, and rightly so. So when he describes that day or that hour of the of the coming of the Son of Man, he he conveys it to the days of Noah. Uh, some of you may have may, may feel like you know this kind of stuff, this Christian apocalyptic prophecy, it's just kooky and it's just weird, right? But I mean, hey, look, Elon Musk and and everybody, they're trying to colonize Mars for the same reason, right? Even like with an atheistic worldview, you also have an apocalypse. A G2 dwarf star in its main phase, such as our sun, has an expiration date. And that's a pretty brutal and kind of meaningless apocalypse, actually. <laughs> this is a much better one. Everybody has one, and you necessarily must. But this one describes a redemptive plan that is in place. When he describes the Son of Man and his return, uh, the coming of the Son of Man, he conveys it to Noah. Noah sounded kooky as well. Look, like water is going to fall out of the sky. Everything's going to be underwater, right? That, that God's going to flood the earth. He was mocked for it. Some of the same sins that were pervasive in the days of Noah are pervasive today. I've committed some of those sins myself. I am just as guilty as everyone who was awash in the waters of the flood. The people who, the eight people who entered the ark were not sinless. Rather, they just saw as God poured his wrath out, he also provided deliverance. In the days of Noah, that deliverance was through the ark. Jesus would call himself the door, right? The way. Today, that ark door is Jesus. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So we have something in common with Noah. We have the same God, same character, the same holiness, whereby he will eradicate sin and bring about justice forevermore. The difference is that we don't have to get on a boat. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way that the coming of the Son of Man will be. People don't know. They don't believe in this kooky apocalyptic prophecy stuff that's in the Bible. And they, like the people in the flood who didn't believe Noah, will be swept away in it. Now, in verse 40, the two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain at the handmill, one will be taken, the other left. That's the verses, uh, verses 40 and 41. In the, uh, in the 90s, Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye released like the Left Behind series. Uh, and as an avid young reader, I read them all myself. And um, it didn't, it, I, I don't know, I don't know how much it shaped my personal eschatological views, eschatological is like a $5 word for your interpretation of the sequence of events at the end times, but it certainly shaped church culture's view quite a bit. There, there are some accounts of the origin of the nature of what we call the rapture, All right? That word rapture doesn't appear in our English translations, but it is, uh, it is sort of a transliteration of a Greek word uh, is where we get the concept from. And in that depiction, you've got Christians being taken away. Now, this would, this would be a, a view that coincides with verse 31, what we just saw in a couple of, uh, couple of devotions ago, 
He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. This along with 1 Corinthians 15 and some of Paul's writings to the, to the, um, the church at, at Thessalonica or Thessaloniki, that's where we get this idea of Christians who are doing what they're doing. Nicholas Cage is flying a plane, and suddenly he's, you know, everybody's called up into the sky. Everybody just disappears. Um, the belief of a rapture in, in those terms was influenced not only by LaHaye and Jenkins, but before that by a young woman who claimed to have been given a vision from God describing this. Uh, and the idea of a rapture kind of took on a life of its own, in some ways apart from what Scripture clearly teaches. There's another interpretation of this text, which is that it's not Christians who are taken, but it's those who will face the wrath of God who are taken. Meaning, like you, if that's your view of the rapture, you you would not want to be raptured in that interpretation, right? That uh, you've got two men in the field and one's taken, the other one's left. The one who's taken is like the weed being taken from the wheat, the goat being removed from among the sheep. The two women will be grinding grain one uh, with a handmill, one will be taken and the, and the other one left. In the most popular view of this, you want to be the one taken, right? By this alternate interpretation, you don't want to be the one taken. Therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. And so he conveys himself to a thief in the night, one that would come at a time that you don't expect because it's a time that you do not expect and that he conveys the the his his righteous return uh to the act of a thief coming in the night according to this other uh, an, an alternate interpretation it's not a good thing for you <laughs> right like you don't want you don't want this thief so to speak this is a this is bad news this is your comeuppance this is judgment this is this is when you have to answer before god for every last thing you've ever done um, so there are there are two interpretations of this text. One is that it's good to be taken. The other one that is that's bad to be taken. This is why you are also also to be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Regardless of which view you take, the application is largely the same. Do the will of God. Repent from sin. Make disciples. Serve in your church. This is the most important thing that you do. It's what is of eternal value. It's what lends, in fact, imbues your vocation with eternal significance. That it is your mission field. That regardless of what your view, if you're if you're at the if you're grinding grain, you're working in the field, you're working at Boeing or Amazon or Microsoft or AT&T or Google or Twitter or driving for Uber or serving as a receptionist, like in any regard, wherever you are, that's where you're about the will of God because you don't know when you clock in if you're not going to clock out, you don't know. You don't know. And because you don't know, you're left in a state of the constantly possible imminence of Christ's return. This is, this is the one distinction that we see in verse 36 between Jesus the Son and God the Father. Jesus doesn't even know. It's a brilliant design on God's part because it means that we don't have a deadline. If God gave us a deadline, if, he, if he's fully capable of stating a date, okay, if he had given us an exact date of his return, knowing human nature, we would have all kind of waited like a high school kid working on a term paper until the last possible minute. We would have sinned like crazy and then repented on the eve of his return. But because we don't know the time of the hour, Jesus doesn't even know the time of the hour, we must constantly repent from sin. 
We must constantly do the will of God. You cannot look at your schedule and say like, I think that maybe next week's a good time to repent from sin. No, you've got to, re- you've got to repent today. You've got to repent now. Confess your sins to those to whom you're accountable. Get your, get your act right. Gouge out your eye if that's what's causing you to stumble, right? Evoking a, a, te- a metaphorical teaching of Jesus's. Get drastic in repenting from sin because you don't know how much time you have left. This is the most urgent text in all the Bible. Let that be reflected in what you do as soon as you're done with this devotion. Are you ready? Urgently, go.